Um, every time of uh, every time, every time of the year, every season or segment of of time that we move through has a special, you know, a special energy, special special things that are that are happening then. And the um, the basic idea is that the, the, the non-Torah world thinks that things are celebrated when they are because they commemorate the things that happened. Right? That's the notion. That's what, they, that's what they call the concept of an anniversary. Something, something happened at a certain time and therefore we celebrate that thing at the same time in, the, in succeeding cycles because it recalls that time. Something special about it because it's connected to the, to the time when it happened. It's not correct from a Torah point of view. It's not at all correct. It's not the it's not it's not the correct concept of time and what it does. The correct notion is that we celebrate things when we do. Right, moving up now, these two weeks coming up towards Shavuos, Shavuot, this time and that particular event. These things we are doing now, not because they once happened, but they once happened because this is the time. In other words, just like when you move through space, different places have different realities, and there are, there are zones of reality in space, right? Israel, for example, got a higher level of Kedush, of sanctity. Yerushalayim has a higher level than that does. The precincts of the Beis HaMikdash, the temple, got a higher Kedush, inside that's a higher level. There's, there are ten descending or concentric layers in space. Similarly, time has its own layers that can be experienced or, or moved through. In fact, to put it most accurately, time is really the space of space. That means the dimensions of space in the world are moving through time. And they, they move through zones that have different levels, different, different natures and different levels. And because you move through a zone that has a certain potential, it makes possible the things that happen at that time. We don't celebrate Pesach in the spring because it once happened in the spring. It once happened then because it was spring. Right? It, once, it happened when it happened because the time was Mesugal. That means the time, was, the time set up a reality that the events fell into, or rather that the events were brought up by, they were created by, by that time. I mean, it's very clear to see in any aspect of Torah. Pesach is a prime example. It's written in many sources that when the Malachim, the angels, visited Avram Avinu, Abraham, what he fed them was matzah. The reason that he fed them matzah was because, in fact, according to the deeper tradition, it was not only a Pesach Seder, which they had matzah, it was also a Purim Suda. That means they were celebrating at one and the same time Pesach and Purim. You don't need to be an expert in Jewish history to know that Pesach and Purim hadn't happened yet, not by many, many centuries. Pesach hadn't happened by many centuries, and Purim hadn't, hadn't happened yet by many more centuries. This was a premonition, it was a pres- it presaged those historical events by many, many centuries. So why, if the common, our notion is that we eat matzah at Pesach, because once we went out of Egypt, and we ate matzah at that time, so to commemorate the event, we now eat matzah again. It's not right. It's not... We, matzah, we eat matzah and we ate matzah because that time of year has the energy that makes that mitzvah reality. We went out of Egypt at that time because that was the reality. 
Are we getting somewhere? The year, yeah, the year is moving through a cycle or a spiral. Each node that is contacted, each node that is moved through, has a particular reality. That makes possible the mitzvah of matzah. It makes the, the same energy as it happens. The same energy in the world that is called Pesach is bringing matzah into existence, whether Pesach had yet happened or not. Brings Pesach into existence, makes freedom possible, makes things grow as the spring. It's not that it happens to be spring, so now, so now we, you know, there's a rejuvenation. There's an energy of rejuvenation in the spiritual world, and it comes down to the world as springtime, as a particular emotional connection, spiritual emotional connection, and therefore historical events fit in because the time made them possible. We celebrate, we, we celebrate, we recollect, we revisit the essence, not the historical event. Of course, one of the most important outputs of this idea, products, if you like, of this idea, maybe somebody can just pull that out. Just bite the cord in half. <laughs> the, uh, the output of this idea, of course, the practical output is one has to know that when you move through that space in time, that time again is the same things become possible. Now, the first view, do you understand, the output is that the first view holds that it's a celebrate, it's a um, sentimental type of revisiting an anniversary of an event, it has only emotional significance. It's a recollection. But we don't understand that. We understand it's a revisiting of the same power, which means you can do the same thing again. That's a difference. There's no sentimental notion in, in Torah. There's no sentimental, emotional... Everything has a reality. When you go through that time of year again, your freedom is possible then. Well, that's basic. That's a basic idea. The challenge is, what is this time of year? What is, what is happening now? Let's try and pin it down. It's a remarkable idea that's explained by one of the experts in this particular line of thinking, in this generation. Let's try to, let's try to understand, where are we now? Where are we now and what does it mean? We're now two weeks away, right, two weeks away from, from Shuas. We want to won't say the exact name of the day yet because... The sunset now, and we don't want to want to wait until we make a bracha and count the day correctly in Sfirah But we are now holding two weeks away from Shuas. We've gone through five of the weeks of the seven-week period, and now we're entering, right? We're moving in now to the last the last two weeks. What is the last two weeks of the seven weeks? What what does it mean? So it's written in, in very deep sources that these two weeks have a unique characteristic. And that's a very painful subject. Very, very painful. The energy associated with this time especially has a special pain, special difficulty. If the, the best analogy would be that the patient has now become, the patient is now entering a very dangerous phase, but he's too unconscious to even know. In fact, the patient in this situation is so unconscious that he thinks he's conscious, and he thinks he's going to be fine, but he's not necessarily going to be fine. It's a very, very confusing and dangerous time. I'm going to try to make that clear. The Zohar says something like this. There are very, very deep Kabbalistic ideas, most of which are beyond our, beyond our reach almost entirely. But let's see if we can just take from them at least uh, skim some of the surface at least and see if we can... What we can... What can we learn and apply from the levels that we are capable of reaching? It says that there's a notion like this. Uh, for what it's worth, I'll, I'll share the words with you. Then we'll, uh, perhaps we can strain a little together to try to, to try to delve a little bit into what's being, what's being said. What's written is that 
for one month after Pesach, 30 days, is the light of Pesach shining. In other words, we always have a notion that, in fact, 30 days before an event, it begins to, there's a glow that, that, that makes that, that particular power becomes accessible. And there's a notion also that 30 days afterwards is also a glow that is spreading out that could be tangible. There's many examples of this. I mean, the Talmud also says that 30 days before a person dies, for example, there's a certain glow that surrounds the body that fades, and if you're sensitive, you could see that. I mean, there are, there are plenty of other examples. But this light of Pesach, which is a light of freedom, you know, the springtime, the, uh, all those manifestations of this new energy, which we'll need to understand more deeply, that is lasting in the world until 30 days later. And then something unusual happens, and this is what we need to try to, to focus on. What happens then is, and you realize, of course, that we're talking days here, but the 49 days that constitute the period between Pesach and Shavuos that we're going through now, they, they grouped, obviously, into seven weeks. We count the weeks and the days. Right? So what happens is like this. For those four weeks, as it were, is a special light shining that lights up the process of these seven weeks, which are difficult and dangerous in themselves. And then there's a special gift, special gift that prolongs the light for one more week. The way it's put is that the gates are about to close. Again, these are all very esoteric you know, terminologies. The gates are about to close. It means the higher gates. And as they're about to close, a special decree is issued which holds them open for another week. That's what happens, special gift. And one can access certain things, even in this difficult time, as a remnant or vestige of the gift that Pesach was. Again, all this needs more explanation. But Pesach is a special gift. The gift spreads out into the phase of darkness. It makes it possible to, to bear the darkness, let's say. And then when the gates are about to close, a vestige, a last vestige or remnant of the gift is given, and the gates are held open for another week. And then they close. And the last two weeks that we enter now are two weeks where the gates are closed. So it says. And you enter Shavuos, you enter the, the period of the giving of the Torah, which is the, the ultimate revelation, the ultimate reaching beyond. That 50th day, which is so high, we don't even name it, we don't even count it. We leave it unexpressed, because it is beyond ability to count, that 50th day. That you enter by going through two weeks, which are so dark that the reference to them is that the gates are closed. Now, you know, what does that mean? Why does it have to be that way? Why, if there's a special gift that the gates are held open one more week, you know, couldn't they be held open for three? If it's already, if it's already breaking the rules, as it were, Hashem, and He's holding them open for us, and He's allowing you one more week, so He couldn't have done it for two more after that? I mean, what, what does this mean? What does this mean? Even more perplexing is the Zohar's explanation. The Zohar explains this, right? This, this is what purports to be an explanation. Zohar says that when a bride is getting ready... What does it mean? It means that when the bride prepares herself for the wedding, she's miskashet, you know, she puts on her kishutim, the, the ornaments that the bride is wearing. The Gemara says the 24 ornaments that a bride wears, bedecks herself. She's preparing with, with that. It's not fitting. There's a closure of the gates, because when the bride is preparing herself, it's not derech eretz, it's not refined to enter the chamber where she is preparing herself. Right? It's not... It's not fitting. It's not decent. And therefore, one is closed. The bride is Torah, the giving of the Torah, the Jewish people becoming the bride of Hashem. That's a well-known image. And therefore, while she's preparing herself and putting on her beautification, her 24 
elements of, of adornment, of jewelry, etc. That is not a fitting time to be in the inner chamber where she's preparing, and therefore that's when the doors are closed. That's when the doors are closed. Then the Zohar says that there's a way to get in, there's a way to see the beauty, to see the bride in her preparing herself, and the way to do it is to become like a little child. To become like a small child. Because the way of people is not to close the doors in front of small children. No one objects if a little child is standing there watching the bride as she's getting ready for her wedding. Anyone else would be excluded as being an unrefined behavior that's not, that's not fitting. But a little child could be admitted. And therefore one can gain admission behind the closed doors at this time of year by making oneself like a child. The main image of that childlike quality is the quality of complete it means many things in the Kabbalistic system, but one of the things it means is complete humility. It means there's, if there's a destruction of the adult ego, of any sense of self-importance, then there's a complete, all that's left is the completely natural, non-artifice-laden naivety, as it were, of a child, then, then one could enter. You know, what, what, what is being said? A childhood also means, in the, in the deeper wisdom, childhood means what's called that means the, 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 the um, uh, intellectual levels are taken down. That means there's, there's a sacrificing of maturity and of, of mature insight to a simple level, like before a child is bar mitzvah. That's usually, usually regarded as a negative state. Here it seems to be the solution. What exactly is what exactly is going on? What exactly is being is being said? The process is this. It's very again, it's not easy and it's not uh, painful and difficult areas. Any process has certain characteristics. Any human process has certain characteristics. The, the, the standard pattern, the universal pattern in human experience, is that there is first a gift. The beginning of the process is that there's a gift. The gift is a gift of, a gift of consciousness. There's a gift of inspiration, of elevation. That's what happens. The reason that it happens is because unless you were inspired, unless you were uplifted, unless you were given the gift, you wouldn't know what it were possible to do. You wouldn't have any motivation. You'd have no vision. Before you start any process of growth, there must be a vision. There's a vision, an idealistic vision, of what it is that you must become, what the destination must be. Nobody can make progress in a journey, particularly when the journey is dangerous and difficult, if there's not a vision of the destination. It's that vision, it's that, it's that premonition or vision of the destination that keeps you going. That's where you draw the strength to make the journey. If you didn't have a vision of the destination, you wouldn't even know where to move. But then, as soon as you have got enough of that, to, being a, to begin a resolute moving along the journey, then the inspiration is taken away, because that's the journey. That's the journey. Inspiration is free. It must come from without. But then the journey has to come from within. That's the process of life. We've discussed this on many occasions, in many different applications, but that is the, that's the basic pattern. And then, when the journey is difficult... But it's undertaken, you reach the destination. The difference is that the destination in the beginning was only a vision, it was not real. And when it's reached at the end, it's real because you've made it happen. The whole point of the exercise is to make it happen, because the point of being here is to build who you are. 
You don't build who you are by being given who you are as a free gift. You build who you are by being given challenges and ordeals. And through working through, through, working through the ordeals, you become what you have to be. And therefore the process of life is one of difficulty. That's the nature of the world. And our concept of the world is that it's a process of ordeal, of, 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 of difficulty, immense difficulty. On the contrary, it's a process of being tempted and tested by ordeals that are as difficult as death. And the reason is because the gold here is life. And therefore, the energy is always balanced in the spiritual world. It's not a tokenism. It's not, it's not, a, it's not, it's not a game. If you want to achieve a real life and a life that has to be an eternal life, then what you have to go through is the ability to deal with death. And the ability to deal with it, the, the challenge, the, the death forces, those challenges are from within the self. And the, the real battles to overcome the self. That's where the real... The vision is also from the self, but it's a gift from outside of what the self could be. And that's the process. Pesach is a time when, when the Jewish people are taken out of Egypt for free. They didn't deserve it. They hadn't done anything. They were a slave people. They had no... They had not yet, in a meaningful sense, earned it. They were lifted up and taken out. And then they were put into the desert, which is the phase of difficulty. And that, as we've said many times, we've discussed, we've shared together the idea, that is the basic pattern of life. The month of Nisan, which is where Pesach is, is called Nisan. Nisan means miracles. Miracles are that which happen from without. You get uplifted. The zodiac, the mazal of the month of Nisan, is a sheep. Because it's an animal that is passively led. It doesn't have its own strength. It is just a follower. There's a leader and the sheep simply follow. And then the next month, of course, is Iyar. The month we're going through now. The month of Iyar is the month of the... The, the zodiac of the month is the, is the ox. The bull. Because that's an animal that has to just display its own willful strength. Its own power. Exactly opposite. And of course, the result of having been led and shown. And then having the guidance taken away. And having fought for it yourself is the perfect harmony of those two opposites, which is called the third month, which is Weshwurses, which obviously is Taomim, or twins, right? What they call Gemini. Which is not the one leading and the other following passively, or the other one without, but the two, the harmony of what Shwurs is, which is Hashem and Us, and they're written in the Oral Law, and the two Luchos, and the Moshe and Aaron, and all the dualities that, that Shwurs is. That's the pattern. It's a pattern. That's the pattern of any, any process. It's the pattern of how a, a father is teaching his child to walk, his father is taking the child and he's lifting him up and when the child is standing on his feet and the father holds him and he takes a step that's an exhilarating moment it's a moment when the child is standing and not only standing but he's secure, he cannot fall he feels the security of his father's hands and that's when his father lets go that's when he lets go and that's when the, the child is feeling betrayed he's feeling the terror of having been brought into a situation that he doesn't know how to cope with he could not have gotten there himself he trusted and the trust has let him down as it were, and the one he trusted has let him down, but that's when he learns to walk. That's when he learns to walk. And then when he learns to walk, and he moves towards his father, and they embrace each other, so in that moment he understands that when his father left go of his hands, was a moment of deeper attachment, in fact, and deeper concern, than the moment when the father held his hands in the beginning. But you can't know that when you feel abandoned. You only know that when you reach... That's the process, that's what life is, the purpose is, the purpose is, that the father had not lifted him up, he wouldn't have known what's intended. He gets given it as a gift, but after you get given it as a gift, now you see what you're capable of, you see what the goal is, although it's an illusion, but nevertheless you see what's meant, and now you build it yourself. That's the process of life, it's always that way. But what we need to look at this evening is a much more, and it focus on what happens, we focused before Pesach, we focused on the gift the first night of Pesach is a free gift. You can ask for anything you want on that night. That was a night when Hashem himself appeared, not through any intermediary. Jewish people were taken out directly, as it were. 
but it's a moment of birth of the Jewish people or conception if you like and it was all miracles all miraculous that corresponds to the initial flush of the romantic phase of any human experience where it's all given for free where no work is done that's what it is then we move into Sphira which is the difficulty where you're moving through the desert there's no free gifts you have to do it yourself we've shared that idea as well what are the last two weeks what are the last two weeks what are the last two? <coughs> the last two weeks which in the in the deeper system are the last two of the seven middas the seven uh, seven uh, yeah, attributes or emanations whatever you call them in English that the world is broken down into these seven layers and the last two weeks are the have unique characteristics they have special names and people who try to work through the appropriate consciousness of each, each week, or in fact even each day, they are focusing now for the last two weeks on these two particular areas, and they are fraught with difficulty, they have their own special, unique elements of breakdown and danger and difficulty, and they present a unique phase. And what the phase is, let's try to say it clearly, and then we try to, try to explore it. The uniqueness of this phase is that in this process that begins with ease and inspiration, then goes through difficulty, and finally ends, if handled correctly, with the revelation, the inspiration that's genuine, the, the acquisition, the genuine having built and acquired, you know, what the process is designed to, to yield, the phase that comes just before the end is far more difficult. Far more difficult than the rest of the difficult phase. In other words, in fact, it's not only that, the sources say that many, many problems occur in that phase that is just before the final gilui, the final shining of the light. What happens then? One thing that happens is things get much worse. Much, so much worse that even what was considered before to have been the worst possible situation gets much worse. Not only that, but just before it gets worse, there's a cruel illusion of redemption. There's an illusion of redemption. Now, this is called the false messiah, false messianic manifestation but there's a false there's an illusion of the end and just when the relaxation just when the God has been let down is where things get much worse than they were before in some Torah sources this is called Kadrusa de Safra that means the blackness before dawn that special darkness the, the tangible darkness that happens just before the sun before the, the light is beginning to, to shine in the, in the eastern horizon, there's a special kind of a darkness that's more than it was at midnight. This darkness in other places is referred to as the pains of labor. The pains of labor. The way, the way that goes is, the model for this process is the conception in the pregnancy and the birth. That, that is how all, it's like, like all other human experiences that fits this particular pattern. The conception is a particular phase, its own characteristics, then comes pregnancy, which enters the zone where there's a certain kind of a curse dimension that a woman experiences, and it becomes difficult, and it becomes more difficult, and becomes more uncomfortable, but it's got nothing to do, no, no matter how uncomfortable pregnancy is, it bears no relationship with labor. What happens is that, in, in, in broad terms, ordeals translate or trans, uh, transition into crisis. And the pregnancy goes a certain way and when the thought is that there will be one more day now which will be a little bit more than the previous day unexpectedly and with no warning happens a situation that is not a little bit more than yesterday was but it's called labor and labor is a completely different experience it's an experience that is not 
the essence of it is a pain. The essence of it is pain. But it's the pain that brings birth into the world. It's the pain that brings the birth into the world. The previous stages could not do that. The previous stages could bring to this. And, and no one knows what brings it about. No one knows, no one knows by definition, even medically it's not understood. It's not even, a, not even in medicine, even a, even a theoretical... Do you know that there's not even a theory in medicine about what triggers labor? So all the research that's been done, I mean, not our subject here tonight, but with all the research that's been done, why suddenly, right, it, it's triggered, is, yeah, is, not, um, is not known. By definition, it comes from another dimension. It's unexpected, and it's a situation of difficulty that bears no resemblance to what came before. Not only is it difficult, but anyone witnessing or experiencing that phase would not read it as a life-giving process. They would, le- they would read it as a situation of, of extreme danger, extreme danger. Not only to one person, but to two. And that, this life that is being generated inwardly, that will come into revelation in the world, as a result of a pregnancy, when the labors entered, that all changes radically. Now what looks like not a child being formed, but it looks like two people about to, to end their lives. Right? It looks like two people are about to end their lives in pain and danger. That's what happens. And it's that difficulty, it's that pain itself, which is giving the final... It, the pains are the energies that bring the child into the world. It's not that they happen to be pains while the child's being born. That's not the understanding. The understanding is that the pain is what brings the child into the world. Why is it like this? First of all, why is it like this? Then we try to look at its application. Why is it like this? The reason is that, again, it's not easy, not easy, but the reason is that when a race is being run and there's an enemy, when there's a battle and there's an enemy, then the moment before victory is when the enemy will throw everything he has into the battle. Right? When you're battling a lower, a lower side, the dark side, you're battling your own lower self. Whatever that manifestation is, whether it's historical with the Jewish people, or whether it's one's own, whatever it is, there comes a moment where the battle's about to be won. And in that battle, the lower side knows, the darker side knows, that this is the last chance for victory. But it has unique characteristics. What we call the lower self, what we call in Torah the Yetzirah, right? Your own, your own negativity, your own, your own lethally dangerous lower, lower self, which is locked in battle with you, and his aim is to kill you. His aim is to kill you. Now, there's no, there are no games here. This is not a game. This is, this is for real, as real as it, can, as it could possibly be. And he'll use any device at his disposal. He'll lull you into, lull you into a sense of security. He's much cleverer, he's at least as clever as you are. And not only that, but he knows you inside out. He knows exactly where you're vulnerable. He's going to use every detail of your vulnerability. He's not interested in proving that he can do it. He's quite happy to pretend that he's been defeated as long as he kills you. So unlike you, when you fight a battle, you need to prove that you've won the battle. He doesn't need to prove anything. He just wants you dead. So he's quite happy for you to think you've won until he slits your throat. He knows exactly how to do it. Because he's you. And what happens is when he feels that he's about to be defeated... Then he's a last effort to throw everything that he has into the battle. And that's when the battle becomes almost superhuman. It's that moment of crisis after the end of a long ordeal that has gone on and on and on and a person has held on and they've become exhausted and they thought it couldn't last any longer and then it lasted longer 
And when they became even more exhausted, they thought it couldn't last possibly any longer, then it lasted a long time longer. When they finally got to a point where it couldn't possibly get worse, it got much worse. That's what, the, that's what a crisis is. And it's in that moment when it gets that bad that most people let go. And it's the moment just before redemption would have happened. It's the moment when they were holding on by their teeth and their nails. And it got so bad that they became aware with absolute clarity in that second that they could not hold on for one more moment. One more moment would be too much and they let go. And all that was needed was one more moment. Because when the, when the, when the perception is clear that this could, this could not be born for one more moment, that's a sure sign that that's why the Gemara says that when that darkness happens before the dawn, that's a sign that the light's about, the dawn's about to break. It doesn't make it any lighter. It doesn't, but it means that while the labor pains are being experienced, doesn't mean that they become a pleasure. The labor pains are just as painful as they were before, but when the woman knows that this is bringing the child into the world, it's all a different experience. How different? Barely different, but just enough to hang on instead of giving up. And most people are defeated at that moment. Why? Because until now they've been dealing only with a limited amount of their own negativity. Just what was necessary. But now that the whole battle is hinging now in the last moment, so then all the negativity is, is thrown in. But not only to understand, there's a difference not only in quality, there's a difference on quantity, there's a difference here in essence, and the difference is, let's try and express it clearly, the difference is not only that in that last moment, when your whole negativity, all circumstances, everything turn against you, the difference in essence is that now it becomes suicidal. Now he becomes suicidally bent on your destruction. Until now he was anxious to survive. Until now he battled you, but he's anxious for his own survival. So he's prepared to give some quarter in the battle. Because he needed to survive. Now what happens is that one more moment he will be destroyed. If, you, if he, he loses the battle now, he will disappear. And therefore it's worth risking everything that he has. And so the last moments he becomes suicidal. How can we, can we express this? Again, the example should be clear. The example should be clear. What has been the process of Jewish history? Let's, say the, 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 let's take an example. The classic battle that we've had with the nation of Amalek. The nation of Amalek. Right? So how did they battle us? When it looked critical, they became suicidal. When it looked critical, they became suicidal. Does that make any sense? Right? In the original battle with Amalek, when it looked like there was no hope of attacking the Jewish people at that moment, and the Jewish people would have moved towards Sinai, and the world would have flocked together with them to Sinai, received the Torah. Right? On, this, on this, this time of year, this time of year, 3,300 years ago, the world began shaking. The Medrash says the world began shaking. Every miracle that was experienced by the Jewish people was experienced internationally. When the sea split, water all over the world split. There were cataclysmic upheavals. The Medrash says that the non-Jews of the world flocked towards their highest prophet, Bilam, and they said to him, what's happening? And he said, Hashem, Hashem, they said, is it a flood? And he said, it's not a flood. Is Hashem going to destroy the world? He said, no, he's promised not to. Maybe he won't destroy it by water, maybe he'll destroy it by fire. He said, don't worry about that either. They said to him, what's happening? He said, Hashem is giving the Torah to His people. They said, let's go. Let's go. Hashem is giving Torah to His people. What could be better? And the nations of the world began flocking to Sinai. And Amalek, whose essence is to stop that, whose essence is to keep the spiritual reality out of the world, whose life depends on that, who is the gap between the knowledge of the higher world and, and the world. He is the gap that is His existence. He draws His essence, His energy, only from keeping the world dark. So he attacked the Jewish people. And he attacked the Jewish people suicidally. He threw himself into an impossible battle. The Jewish people were being taken out by divine, miraculous, miraculous intervention. There was no way they could possibly win. But since their life is the gap, 
And had the Jewish people been totally victorious, and had we received the Torah along with the rest of the world, they would have disappeared. So it was worth throwing themselves in suicide. They weren't, they weren't, people think there's something wrong with them, they're deranged. They're mentally deranged. What, what enemy would possibly throw himself suicidally against his enemy when it's suicidal? Who would do that? The answer is, an enemy is about to be destroyed. An enemy is about to be destroyed who lives only for the destruction of his enemy. If he's going to be destroyed in the next moment, that's what he does. It's his only hope. And even if it's hopeless, he does it. So they threw themselves. What did Rashi say? It was like a man who threw himself into a bath of boiling water. What happened? He, he got badly burnt, but he cooled the water. That's what happened. And the world stepped back from the brink. What happens? The Jewish people managed. But the rest of the world stepped back. They saw the Jewish people attacked by a nation. And they saw they're only human. And they may be vulnerable. And, and it changed their minds. And the world stepped back. And only we made it to Sinai. So he survived Amalek, and that happened throughout history. I mean, how clear... Do you, need to be, do you need me to be more clear than this? What happened 50 years ago? What happened 50 years ago? Didn't it become suicidal eventually? The, eventually it became, there, was an, there was a plan here, right? The vestige of Amalek in the world. The Gemara says that Amalek is called G- Germany. Do you know that? The Gemara uses that word, Germania shall Edom. says that. It names the country, what will be, where it will come from. And what happened when they were about to lose... Did they rally all their forces with all their genius and all their military strategy and all their capacity for, 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 for holding strong under fire, etc.? Did they use all that to make, make a last ditch to save themselves? No, they channeled everything towards the destruction of the Jews. That's what happened. You know that, don't you? When they, when they needed their trains, they needed their trains to make a last hope effort to survive, and it became clear that that was what was needed, they started using all the trains to kill every last Jew that they could. Because that's the essence of their... You've noticed, I presume, I, I presume, that the attacks that have been leveled against the Jewish people lately, not over the last couple of years, from certain neighbors, you know, in the Middle East, have been explicitly suicidal. Explicitly suicidal. That's their honor. It's not their problem, that's their honor. Not doing because there's no other way, that's their honor is to do it that way. Do you know what it means to have mothers in that world urging their 15-year-old sons to go out and kill themselves while killing Jews? Not because it has to be done that way. It doesn't have to be done that way. You have to understand, anybody who can carry a, a, a nail bomb into Machana Yehuda, strapped to his body, can leave it in a, in a, in a, in a, in a garbage can and trigger it from, by remote control from a block away. He doesn't have to die. He wants to die. That's his honor. That's his dignity. He's guaranteed a place in the next world if he does that, if he dies killing Jews. Do you know what the difference is in essence when the destruction becomes suicidal? The answer is you can't battle. There's no, you have no, you have no, what are you going to do? You're going to set up a system where you're going to set it up that, well, if he does that, he'll die. Then people no, that's what he's looking for. You have to understand the argument in Israel used to be that nuclear war will never be possible there. Nuclear war was never possible in Israel because any nuclear weapon dropped on Tel Aviv will wipe out Damascus. And therefore they would never do it. Is that so? Is that so? Could you think of a bigger honor? Do you think they would hesitate for a moment? Do you think that would be the reason that they wouldn't do it? So what defense do you have? You say, well, they can't do this because it will harm them. What's the problem? That's the bitterness. That's the special bitterness of the pre-penultimate step. 
it becomes not just worse, not just a crisis, but since he's about to die, since he's about to destroy, to, to lose the battle and disappear, so then he becomes, he throws everything he has into the battle, but not only that, he throws everything he has, that means he's himself and his life. And therefore to overcome, until now all you had to do was match him in strength. But now you have to give everything. If he's prepared to give everything and he's you, the only way you can overcome him is if you give everything and more. And that's why that last moment is so difficult. That's the reason why the last moment is the teeth and nails, and yet that's not enough. It has to be like that. Because now you're being asked not just to match all your power, your own power of negativity, you're being asked to do more than that. Because he's you, and he's as strong as you are, and he's giving it everything. So you have to give everything. And even then the battle's only equal. It's purely logical. There's a, there's a logical structure here. This is not... All these words amount to nothing. If you've ever lived through your own difficulties and crises, you'll know better than or thousands of words exactly what this feels like. And if you haven't, you will. May you never, but you probably will. And of course, it's so obvious. That is the pre-Messianic ordeal. That is the ordeal of the Jewish people. Before the Mashiach, the, the, the Messianic advent, right, is called Chevlei Mashiach, the birth pains of the Messianic Redemption. Right? That's called the birth pains. It's called the labor phase. And all agree that we're in that phase now. It's quite clear. There's not a single dissension. The whole concept is that the world lasts for 6,000 years. The Gemara is absolutely clear about that. There are no, there's no discussion, no debate about that. The world was put into this form of its existence, this phase, for 6,000 years. We're now in 5,760. We're 240 years away from the promised final stage. And the guarantee is that somewhere between now and then there will be a messianic revelation. The Gemara, the, all sources call this the period of the Achreinim. Achreinim is the last, the last phase. And therefore we finally devolve now to a phase where that is the problem. That is the problem. That's where we're holding now. That is those of the last two weeks before Shavuos. It is where the gates close. The gates are closed. You can't get in. What's the work to do when the gates are closed? <coughs> You see, half the battle, there's so many things here, half the battle is that in this pre-Messianic phase of world history, Jews are so beaten down, we're so, so, so battered, the, the, the battle is going, we, we're losing so, so, in such wholesale fashion that we don't even know it. We don't even know it, right? To know that the battle's being, being fought and to know where we're holding would be half the battle won. But, but what's happened to the Jewish people in this generation is they don't even know there's a battle being fought. Let's understand. You have to see this clearly. The world was set up for Torah to be brought to the world. The world was not set up to be doing what it's doing now. To know what the human being is and what the human being is capable of and to see what the world looks like now is such an obvious disparity that should cause a person anguish every day. The world wasn't set up for the pain that it's going through now. I mean, the problem is, let alone Jewish sensitivity, people have no idea, just on, a, on a, a general scale, what's happening. You have no idea. Do you know how many people have been killed this century? Do you know how many people have been killed, you know, like cattle? Cattle isn't the word, like insects. They're never married. Tens of thousands of people get killed now. It's not even a line in a newspaper. It used to be a battle. People got killed in large numbers over long periods of time. Today... Is that what it means? That means with all the intelligence and all the technology, what has happened? And 100,000 people were killed at Hiroshima in one second. And 30,000 three days later. 
in another town. You know, in sub-Saharan Africa now, I mean, you need me to depress you more. In sub-Saharan Africa right now, the AIDS carrier rate, the AIDS carrier rate now is such that there are some places where it's 50% and more. Do you know what that means? That means that that means that 50% of children born die as emaciated corpses before they're three or four or five. You're talking about millions. You're not talking about a hundred here or a thousand there. You're talking about millions upon millions of... Things are not good. Things are not good. And the Jewish people are caught in the midst of this without even a sense of what's happening. Without even a sense of what's happening. You have no idea. There's, there's, Jewish people are here to bring something to the world. We're here to do something. We're, here to, we're supposed to be here to achieve something. And the most most Jews can muster in this generation is a vague hope of more or less coping. Halavite, that tomorrow shouldn't be worse than today. That tomorrow shouldn't be worse than today. It's already a good day. We're not here to cope. We won't we put you here to cope. We're here to do something. There's a job to be done. job to be done. It's 52% of American Jews. This was three years ago. I don't know what it is now. Three years ago, a big national survey was done in America. 52% of Jews in America do not identify themselves with Judaism at all. Not, not anything. They were prepared to accept a Jewish book club, a Jewish community center, a Jewish weightlifting club, anything that had any... Anything. Any, any Jewish association. It could be anything. It could be a sport or a car. Anything. 52% of Jews declared that they had no association at all. That means intermarrying with non-Jews without registering that it's an issue. Not because they've rejected it, they have an ideological passion, and it's not really... But that means you, you're talking about 52% of people who would marry a non... There's nothing wrong with non-Jews. There's nothing wrong with non... We're not marrying them because there's something wrong with them. We don't marry them because we're here to do a job, and that involves building what we're supposed to be. That means they would do that and, and break the line of transmission that has lasted 3,300 years without even knowing that their grandparents were burnt to death so that they should not do this. Without even knowing, taking out the time even to research the fact that it happened. Not that they rejected it and they feel it's irrelevant. Without even knowing. That is is close to miraculous. That is close to miraculous. I don't think you could find a Zulu boy on the streets of Durban who knows less about his cultural heritage. He's probably got more knowledge and more pride than most young Jews of this generation. Most educated Jews of this generation could tell you all sorts of details about world history and culture and so on. They never heard of the Rashbo. They never heard of the Ritbo. They never heard of the Gon. They never heard of the... Never heard of them. Let alone what they wrote and what they did. They were, they were enormous. Any contact with the material is, 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 is stupendous. will change you forever. But they never even heard of them. And if they heard of the Rambam, have they ever read, read one line that he wrote? One line? They can quote you by heart from the manifesto of, of... And he couldn't quote you one line? They pr- probably couldn't enumerate the Ten Commandments. I'm not sure, I don't know... Walk out on the street here and pick up a, get a hold of a young Greek fellow, or a young Italian fellow. Ask him a few questions about his history and his background, even one who wasn't even born there.
The patient is sleeping peacefully. That's what he's doing. He's sleeping peacefully. He doesn't know what's happening to him. He thinks he's sleeping peacefully. What is the work in that phase? What is the work in a phase like that? There's a special work that has to be done. The work that has to be done is you have to do what you have to do in that phase. The last thing you're supposed to do is just, you just give up in, in a se- with a sense of oblivion. And, and That's not what has to be done. Is achievement expected at the level of previous phases? That's not expected. It's irrelevant. It's not. We, we, again, we've shared together the idea many times that our generation is the thick skin on the bottom of the feet. That's who we are. In the messianic form, ikfasid of Mashiach, it's so important to know, ikfasid of Mashiach means the footfalls of the messianic redemption. So people think it means you can hear his footsteps. But the literal translation is it means his heels. And the Kabbalistic sources are clear that we are the bottom of the heels. We in our generation are the thick skin. The beginning of humanity was somewhere here, where the baby's skull is open and you can feel the brain pulsating. That, that was the level of, of life. And as history has moved on, we have gone through the 6,000 years in, in devolving layers. And today we are not part of the body, we are the dead skin at the bottom of the feet. That's what the Meshach means. It means that literally. The Gemara says, there's a lot, there's a lot of detail about the heels. The Gemara says that the heels don't rot when you die, because they're dead even when you're alive. There's, they don't even have to die. They're already dead. That's who we are. That's who we are now. The, the heel is where the serpent puts his poison in. It's not accidental. That means when the battle occurs between man and the death forces in the world, they bite the heel. That's where the poison is. It's a question of how long it takes to spread. So the final generation of humanity, that is, we are the heel where the poison has been... It says when the Tana went into the cave where Adam is buried, in the Machpelah, he was only allowed to look at his heels. Why? Because that wasn't alive... From the moment of sin, yeah, he wasn't alive anyway. So that human being was allowed to look at. The part that's not alive. And one of the great Torah authorities of this generation has pointed out, and I mentioned it before, that's why the heels are insensitive. That's why they have thick skin on the bottom of the feet. You know, you walk around barefoot for a while. We don't really know what that means. But a person who walks barefoot, you know, you can see the thick skin on the bottom of their feet is so insensitive. You can, you, can, you can stick pins into it. You can put burning cigarettes against it. It's not completely insensitive, except to being tickled. And the result is empty, meaningless laughter. And that's exactly what this generation is. Completely insensitive to the worst brutality. But available for superficial stimulation with completely meaningless laughter, that's exactly what... <laughs> understand, have there been failures before in Jewish history? Of course, every time it's gotten good and relaxed we started failing. <coughs> the only time the, the, the Chazal are quite clear, the Gemara is clear. The only time when the olive oil was given out was when the olives were squeezed. That's what Jewish people are likened to olive oil. The olive oil comes out. The more you squeeze the olive the better the oil is. The better the oil is. When were the great works of Torah literature written? And the worst times of Jewish history? In the worst times, when was Tosis? You know the Tosis? The great Rashi and the Tosis written during the Crusades. Rashi, the greatest Torah commentator who ever lived. Right? That nobody's come close to ever being able to grasp what Russia achieved. It was, was written in France during the Crusades. The Toysavists were written over the, last, the next two, three hundred years. There are Toysavists, you have no idea who they were, Russia's grandchildren. They're talking about a homeless people during the, the time of Crusades where, where, where Jewish life was not, not just worthless, it was less than worthless. There were times when Jews weren't even killed because people couldn't bother. There's one of the Baalei Toysis, you understand, you know, know these things, there's one of the Toysis in the Gemara, that's three quarters of a page long, which ends, it was found written in blood, 
written in blood. The Bala chasers were imprisoned one night. A certain group of them, we were killed the next day. They spent the night learning Torah, and they wrote one of the great commentaries to the, the Talmud that we have, a particular page there, and they were in a, in, a, in a cell waiting to be executed the next day. They wrote in their blood. They took turns drawing blood. And we have today that text which is written in their blood, literally, not, not metaphorically. You can go today, if you go in Prague, I mean, how much do I have to tell you? You go to Prague today, you go to the Alt Neuschul, where the Maral was. Not that long ago that they allowed the blood to be washed off the walls. It's not that long ago. <coughs> Plenty of failures occurred before, but it was at their level. You, know, you have to understand this. When the Jewish people were castigated and, 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 and decimated throughout history, spiritually as a result of their failings. But the failings were failings at their level, not our level. There never was a generation of Jews in the history of, 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 of our people that came to a level where they don't even know what, what's being meant. You have to know that until 200 years ago, there never was a generation of Jews that weren't virtually entirely observant and, and dedicated to the point of giving their lives for it. The exceptions were handfuls, and even then they were only relative to their level. <coughs> yeah, but the last 200 years entered a situation most Jews don't even know that it happened. Not that they've rejected it. They don't even know. Anyway, what is the work that's required in that phase? The work is if to become a little sensitized. Understand that there's something to be done here. This is the time, this is the time, the Chavot Chaim says that in a time when things are as cheapened and besmirched as they are now, you pick them up for free. That's what happens. That's what happens when you go to a place where people walk on diamonds because they scorn them and that's like the, they think it's dust. Yes, a person goes to a place where the dust of the earth is diamonds. The people think you're ridiculous. They mock you when you put them in your pockets and you start filling sacks. There's a person scrabbling in the dust. You don't have to think about that. You think that when you get home where you came from with this export, you think what it means then. That's what the Chavetz Chaim says. Today you do mitzvahs. You're anxious to perform mitzvahs and, and do what you should do as a Jew. And then you get laughed at. Laughed at or... or it's okay, they can laugh at that, because it's dust that they trample, but it's uh, exported. When they exported the place where you came from and where you're going back, it's priceless. In a generation where those things are valued, they're hard to come by. Then you have to be somebody to pick them up. In a generation where people walk on them and they're scorned, then you don't have to be anybody. You can pick them up for free. There's a tremendous merit in a generation where it's not obvious and where there's only mockery, or, or, or even worse, where there's complete you know, um, apathy. In a generation like that, it's easy to pick them up. It's easy to pick them up. How much faith do you have to have in a generation like this to be somebody? In our grandparents, our great-grandparents' generation, a grandmother, your great-grandmother had more faith in a little finger, in a fingernail, than some of the most learned people in this generation. The Gemara says that the nail of the early generations was, had more than the, the belly of the... We're not, we're not, not, not metaphorically. Grand, the great-grandmother of anybody in this room, certainly her, the great-great-great-grandmother, was ready to die for it, there's no question about it. Her faith extended to being prepared to die if necessary. It's doubtful whether that can be said of some of the significant leaders of this generation. What's needed is a knowledge of what the situation is. It's not what's needed, not a situation, not a sensation of despair. 
On the contrary, this is the time to get busy. How much is required? Only, it's a very minimal amount that's required. It's only in proportion to what one is capable of. Well, not one's not, we study the previous generations for inspiration. A person can make a mistake and get depressed thinking how impossible it is for us to reach their level. We're not expected to reach their level. We expect to reach our level. I once heard one of the great Torah sages of this generation. Somebody once asked him with a broken heart. I was present in the room. He was, he was discussing the subject. And somebody asked him with a broken heart, Hi, what hope is there for us? You, you, where can we draw the inspiration to do anything? To serve Hashem in any way? Uh, for example, I mean, the question happened, the question I happened to ask this question in the context of davening, of prayer, of prayer. If we are that hopeless, if we are the dead skin on the bottom of the feet and we're completely insensitive, so then is it worth even opening our mouths? What hope do we have He's going to listen to us? We're asking for the same things that great people of previous generations asked for and they were not granted. So you can listen to us. That great Rabbi Akiva, for example, the Gemara says, in his generation they were so great that when they prayed, when they davened, all they did was take off their shoes and it began to rain. That means they used to daven with their shoes off in those days. Before they even opened their mouths, they just prepared themselves to pray. And it began raining. That's how their prayers were answered. And they asked for the redemption and the Mashiach and Yerushalayim and all those things they were not granted. I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask now. Rabbi Kiva was on that level, capable of reviving the dead. Of, of, of cosmic greatness, indescribable greatness. So he asked for the things, and he was not granted them. So, how can I generate even a semblance of, of, of paying attention and thinking that it means anything? I mean, for 3,300 years now, we've been asking for these things, and we've been getting less and less and worse and worse. Now, we use our words so carelessly and so negatively in such, in such unclean fashion that they have no meaning, no spiritual power left in them. So now, three times a day, I'm going to stand there and I'm going to ask him for things. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It is so, it is so, it's so, it's so humiliating. How can I... And he answered him a classic, and, a classic and direct answer. He said to him that Jewish history doesn't work like that. Jewish history is a human form. Jewish history is a human form. That means we need the generations through the head and we need the for the feet as well. It all stands on the feet. They all stand on us. The feet are where they need. That means that the work of Jewish history has to progress all through the 6,000 years. You can't do away with the big and you can't do away with the small. That means my, my tefillah, you have to understand that he's going to grant those requests when enough of us have done the work that we have to do. He's not waiting for Rebbe Akiva, or for that prophet, or this prophet, or for me, or for you. He's waiting for the togetherness of all that we have to deliver. And when we've all delivered what we have to deliver, then it'll be... You know what it says? That in Shemaim, Midrashim say that in, in the higher world, is a barrel. That's called a nod in Hebrew. That means like a, a barrel. It has to be filled with various... A barrel for, for mitzvahs. And tefillah, davening, prayer has to be filled. So how did that barrel get filled? So the early generations of the world's history, the enormous power. When one of the prophets davened his own heartfelt tefillah to Hashem, he had to bring the Mashiach, and to bring the redemption, and bring the Jewish people out of this thing. So he half filled the barrel by himself. Enormous power. Yabi Akiva came along and he filled it, who knows how many gallons he put in. Enormous. And as the generations have gone by, the barrel's getting fuller and fuller, with less and less. That's what's happening. Each generation that is less spiritually great is putting in less. But it's getting fuller. And one day, in the last end of day situation, when the barrel is going to be brimming over, and almost full, and we have almost no power left, so one broken-hearted Jew is going to utter one last pathetically hopeless, almost hopeless filler. It's going to fill the barrel. And that's the one that's going to do it. It's not time to get hopeless. That's the time to get hopeful. The fact that you're delivering less means you're getting closer. It's the logic to say, well, it's hopeless now because I have so little. 
They have so little, that's all, that's all that's required. If a person gave you a check for a million pounds, and you dropped it into a room full of blank checks, and you spent days trying to pull out your check, until you've, yeah, and you, and you, after days of work, you finally emptied the whole room, there's a small pile left. So you say to yourself, oh, what are my chances of finding it now? I've worked so long, I'm never going to go home. You have to be a fool for that. The closer, the closer you get, the more, the more you should be thinking. It's taking a long time, but you're getting close now. He's not asking you to fill the barrel by yourself. He's asking you for one drop. You can't do that. So what do we go through life without even a realization that it's even relevant? Even relevant. The gates are closed for the last two weeks. That's what happens. Those two, those two qualities are called Yesod and Malchus. Those two of the seven. Those are the last two. They are the ones that bring the, the revelation and the revelation itself. That's what it is. And when it starts to appear, Yesod is called the connection between man and woman. It's where the bond occurs. And Malchus is where it actually reveals itself. That's what it is. Those are the last two weeks. When it begins to reveal itself, that, that, that's, when, that's when the danger sets in. Now it becomes close to, to vision. It now becomes the eyes can be laid on this thing. So now it becomes a target for all the eyes that should not see it. While it's hidden inwardly, there's no problem. Like Baomer, for example. Like Baomer, the 33rd day, last week. 33rd day of the Omer is tremendous rejoicing. Why? It's a period of difficulty. Because by that stage, the inner work has been completed. The inner work has been completed. The seeds have been built completely. But now they have to come out and grow. That's where the danger begins. That's when all those who should not be looking are looking with all the eyes of negativity. And that's where one has to remain secret. One has to remain secret but deliver the goods and negotiate that difficult phase until, until Shavuos. This is the time of year. In other words, what matches up to our generation, what our generation is, what the Jewish people have become in this generation, is exactly paralleled by what's happening now in the seven weeks between Pesach and Shavuos. We're no longer the Pesach generation that was taken out in a miraculous blaze of light. That's not us, in case you, in case you, in case you, you still hadn't noticed. And we're not the earlier generations. What are we? We are the last two weeks where the gates have been closed. We don't hear answers. We don't see things. We have no evidence. We live in darkness. That's where we are. That's the way it's designed to be. But what happens in those last two weeks, which is where we are now, is you're moving towards Shavuos, only two weeks away. In those generations that were earlier, where there was a lot of light, were all seven weeks away. Now we enter the phase where there's only a little time left. And all that's required now is to hold on. Yes, it's holding on with tooth and nail in that final phase where the pains become severe. Definitely, that's the way it is. But the more severe they become, the closer it means that one is... closer one is. And therefore, the focus has to be not depression and negativity. It has to be a genuine knowledge and an awareness of what the situation is. You have to know that we're not, uh, not a, a, even a, a subtle shade of what we once were when all we lived for was a spiritual path. All we lived for was to dedicate every moment and every, every fiber of everything that we were to, this, to bringing this light into the world. That's what the Jewish people were. That's what they lived for. Everything else was completely, completely subservient. And we become a people who forgot even that it happened once. And therefore what's required is just a little bit of research, a little bit of, of, of re-examination of what of this process is relevant. Not much is required, very little. But the process of opening up, at least beginning to awaken the dormant, not, it becomes, one has to become a child again in order to get into where the bride is preparing herself. That's what it means. 
One is to become childlike, go back to the freshness of a child's inquisitive nature without all the heaviness of, 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 of ego and of, of habit. Remarkable thing, you know, the, maybe we'll finish with this. What, what, are, the, what are the garments? What are the, what are the jewelry? What, what is the kishutim, the uh, adornments, the ornaments of the bride? What are they? What are these 24? What are they? You know what are the 24 ornaments of the bride? The 24 books of Tanakh. The 24 books of Scripture. Right? There are 24 books in the canon. The scriptural writings. Five books of Tanakh, Yeshua, Shoftim, etc. Tehillim, Prophets. 24 books. And the Gemara says that these are the 24 ornaments of the bride. That she wears. Those books of the Torah are what beautify the bride. You would think that she's, her beauty... And the beauty, the beauty of the bride, which is the books of the Torah, you would think that Shavuot is the time when she wears them. Shavuot, when the Torah is given. So then that's when these ornaments are manifest. And you see it's not like that. You see she's wearing these things two weeks before. It's in the darkness that these things are. It's in the two weeks that they are being, they're being worn. There's a special invitation. That's a special uniqueness, an opportunity to see this beauty. Especially given now. Especially given. It requires becoming a child. If you weren't given it as a child, if you didn't have Jewish education as a child, if you weren't sensitized spiritually as a child, you have to go back to that now. Now's the opportunity. You say, well, you weren't taught. They didn't teach you to read Hebrew. You went to a place where in the Sundays where they, you messed around and nobody made it attractive and they told you it was all superficial or they didn't tell you. It's good enough to be an excuse till now. It's good enough now. You can blame them. But now's your, now, now's your job. Our job. Got to go back now to that phase and re-enter the phase when education should have been done and get some of that education in a mature fashion with a correct spiritual sensitivity. What is the bride? What is the bride? If the adornments of the bride are the 24 books of Torah, what's the bride herself? The say that the bride herself is Havonas Asugyas in It's the understanding of the concepts in the oral law. The understanding of Torah and how it works. That means the building of the mind into a Torah mind that is what the bride is that marries Hashem. The books, yeah, the 24 books of Scripture, those are adornments of the bride. It's not the essence. The essence is the, the, essence is the built mind, the constructed mind. The dais, the insight that understands what it means, that pulls them together. This is the time that the bride begins to, yeah, she puts on her jewelry, puts on her ornaments, and she moves towards that marriage, which is Sinai. Therefore, the message, message for us is that we are can allow ourselves to be a little bit heavy at this time of year. That's what's appropriate now. Not that we are not that we're looking to make ourselves depressed as a you know as a habit. But this is the time when we have to face you know face facts. Pesach is the time for looking for a free ride, and it's fine. It's what's meant. But not now. Now's the time when the work has to be done, of of being realistic, understanding that just because things don't feel bad, because the olives are not being squeezed should not be a reason to invite such pressure that the olives will be squeezed. It can be done another way, it should be done another way. Therefore, this is the time to sneak in, to sneak in behind the closed doors, right, to see that beauty, which is uh, the correct preparation, which is leading towards sun. Yes.